Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor, and it's a great pleasure to talk to friends, colleagues, uh, family tonight. Um, it's good to see so many familiar faces. Um, I'm talking about coalition theory, coalition games, uh, and then using them to illustrate uh, some empirical material around coalition government in Europe, particularly. And that's why uh, the talk is called Games Without Frontiers. Because these are games without context, in a sense. These are games that are abstracted and parsimonious. And one of the dangers, I guess, of giving a paper like this, giving a talk like this, is that the, the elegance, the sort of sense of inevitability around some of the models that I'll try and discuss with you, actually underplays the more messy uh, reality, the more contingent reality of how coalitions form, how they put uh, workable programs together, and how they then, you know, in a sense, convert quite diverse sets of manifesto commitments into credible uh, programs of government. And in order to uh, demonstrate this, the best way of demonstrating these abstract or, or sort of uh, uh, slightly sort of um, refined, uh, reified ideas, uh, is to uh, demonstrate them using children's toys or the likes. And what I've got here is our five competition standard white-faced Rubik's Cubes. These are the ones that the, the experts used, <coughs> use, use. And uh, I'm not an expert, but what I'm going to do is pass five of these. Well, I'm going to actually ask, I'm going to ask my PhD student, Jeff Chen, who's... Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jeff. Jeff is uh, doing work on uh, environmental policy in China, and uh, he's doing a lot of work with us on internationalization as well. And Jeff's... Uh, we're very pleased to uh, have him to do this. So that's four. Are you going to be all right with all...? Sure, we'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> So the thing about these Rubik's Cubes is that they're, they're kind of, they're, you know, in a sense, if I start really boring you, this is in itself a diversion. <laughs> but the second thing is that they are a metaphor for a clunky process, which is putting together policy uh, agendas in coalition negotiation processes, where you're having to deal with policy proposals that exist on manifesto uh, documents that are often ill thought out that are often incompatible with other policy commitments from other parties, which will have different timelines, we'll discuss timelines later, and which in many ways you know, really are a bit of a pig in the poke, and in a very short amount of time, especially in the UK, as we would see, you have to then cobble these together using working parties, often people who very you know, rarely have met, them, met each other in the past, quite often have no knowledge of each other, cobble together quite uh, coherent policy programs which then go forward to the coalition agreement. So the first, the first person who actually solves the, the Rubik's Cube uh, wins, because this, this, this paper is all about incentives, of course. Um, the first person wins a bottle of uh, Chianti, which is in, in my bag. Okay? <laughs> Um, but really, that's, that's the individual incentive, but actually I'm hoping there's a sort of sociotropic thing going on that if one person actually puts their hand up and we note that they're winning the bottle of wine, that nevertheless they will help the rest of the, 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 the community here to uh, get all of these Rubik's Cubes into uh, the, the right shape as quickly as possible. And I'm sitting there watching this Rubik's Cube looking dangerously <laughs> close to... Close to Okay. So I'm, I'm talking about um, Games Without Frontiers, about the, the notion of how, how do coalition governments form, uh, how long do they last, and what can they achieve. And I, before that, I want to talk a little bit about sort of what I do. I mean, I'm essentially a comparative political scientist, and uh, that's 
where I've arrived at having started off as a single country scholar working on Germany, but working with quite uh, robust parsimonious models of coalition formation. But over, over the years, I've sort of moved into a slightly different, more a broader, if you like, uh, set of empirical sources with which to work. So comparative political scientists have a set of instincts. One of them is to draw upon the widest possible pool of cases and secure the maximum number of observations of any political phenomenon that's under study. And in many ways, that's very different from the logic of single country studies, which tends to look at a typical or atypical examples of a big phenomenon in a country and why that was important. So it's a different kind of uh, approach. It compares and makes such comparisons explicit. So having kind of compared across, it makes the comparisons that are made explicit. And by doing that, it often uses large-end data, statistical data, for inferential purposes and descriptive purposes. Now, uh, in, one of the, in one of the posts that was encouraging people to come to uh, uh, this, this uh, lecture, there was a, uh, I was described as one of the new quantitative hires, which sort of immediately sort of raised the bar in terms of what kind of uh, <laughs> statistical data I was going to use. But unfortunately, I'd already done all, the, uh, done all the OHP. So let me just say here, this is descriptive statistical data, not inferential. Okay. And the other thing which I do do uh, a lot and I think is actually necessary when trying to make sense out of quite diverse data in a comparative method is draw upon abstract and parsimonious models to sift, to structure that data. Okay? Now that... <laughs> This does mean that if you manage to do all the other four, <laughs> you are dictator. <laughs> okay. So this, this approach, this comparative politics approach, is very different from the single country or area studies tradition, which is driven by an instinct to sort of drill down and understand uh, the, the warp and weft of a particular country, the thick context, the, the interplay between uh, language, culture, uh, institutions. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that approach. I, uh, for a start, I work in a department where there are a number of very, very good scholars who do that kind of work. Secondly, I did my PhD at the University of Birmingham in the Institute for German Studies, which was very much of that ilk. It was a, 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 an institute which was dedicated, using the social sciences, but nevertheless dedicated to the study of Germany and the Germanic sort of sphere around Germany, so you know, one or two people doing work on Austria and Switzerland, but basically looking at Germany. And you know, if you're doing that kind of work, it's required that you can kind of talk with some authority about the Kulturkampf in the 19th century or you know, the, the problem with uh, the, the failure of a liberal class to emerge in the mid-19th century. You know, it gives you a certain long timeline that isn't there in comparative politics. Okay, so I'm aware of the kind of tension between these two approaches, and I guess my work sort of surfs, if you like, a kind of a creative tension between the notion of trying to uh, get into a political phenomena through uh, depth, through sort of in-depth drilling down into the warp and weft of that political phenomenon, and also having breadth of analysis, a sort of sense of the sort of bigger picture. Also, do we uh, focus on micro? You know, sort of micro-level explanations or macro-level explanations. I mean, there are different temptations depending on the kind of methods you're using. And, of course, there's always the battle between uh, rich description and, and abstraction. What is giving us more in explanatory power? The thick description that might not apply 
beyond a very limited set of states or even one state, or the abstraction that is better applied across many states but loses, deliberately loses, a lot of the what uh, Peter Polzer called the embellishment and detail of political life. And there is a choice to be made when uh, doing that kind of, um, making those choices in research design. So, comparative politics leads you, the way this works, there's certain sort of flaws in the overall sort of uh, execution of comparative politics, which are almost inevitable given the ambitions of that particular subfield of the discipline. And there are three heckles that you'll hear from the floor quite often uh, at conferences uh, when comparative politics scholars are presenting. Right? And the first one is, it's different in Borchester. Okay? I mean, these heckles are kind of so common, they have their own names. And uh, it's different in Borchester, I suppose, in the United States might be, it's different in Boise, Idaho. But essentially, the... Hi, Willie. This is uh, Willie Patterson, who was my doctor father supervisor at the uh, Institute for German Studies in Birmingham in the 90s. And Simon Green, who uh, was a director, a direct contemporary of my, my own, myself, and is at the University of Aston. So uh, I'm really glad you guys made it. Okay. Different in Borchester is basically a principled objection uh, from single country scholars who argue that uh, abstraction, the sort of smooth, smoothing out of data in many ways, doesn't allow you to capture this warp and weft of uh, real politics in different countries. Um, and I, I, I confess that, you know, in, with my German studies hat on in the past at conferences, I have used that, it's different in Borchester, um, uh, 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 gambit. So essentially what you're saying is, nice, but it doesn't apply in my line of work. And it's a, you know, it's a principled objection to the kind of wide, broad brush comparative politics that, uh, that uh, I try to do now. And only a few years ago, former colleagues of mine, at the, at myself and the University of Sheffield, uh, who were, work, were working on a, a research project funded by the ESRC for about half a million, to look at changing modes of governance in uh, Southeast Europe as a result of engagement with the EU. And we used to you know, present early prototypical papers on, on our methodology at conferences in the region, for, for example, at the Institute for Economics in Zagreb, and were told in no uncertain terms by people that there was no way we could know anything of any value about this region. We had no idea about the, 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 the kind of warp and weft of the region. We had no idea of the sort of uh, the subtleties, the, 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 the atavistic hatreds, the enmities, the long sort of historical explanations that are required to get a grasp on these things. In the end, we got a book out of it, um, so <laughs> I'm pretty pleased with it. Uh, but nevertheless, that, you know, it's a powerful argument. The next heckle, though, is uh, less, uh, a, less, uh, a less laudable heckle, and that is the Zanzibar gambit. The Zanzibar gambit is essentially a ploy that is deployed by uh, scholars who accept the logic of uh, the comparative politics approach but are de deliberately, in a sense, trying to catch you out because there's a, sort of, there's a sort of logic of numbers in the comparative politics approach that leads you to be exposed to certain, uh, certain kinds of loaded questions. So the gambit is based on the assumption that any scholar who is dealing with more than 10 countries at a time, and there are one or two exceptions to this that we're familiar with um, you know, over the years, but generally speaking, 
any scholar who is talking about more than 10 uh, countries at a time is incapable of doing so beyond a certain level of generality. It's just because it's just the information costs are too high. On top of which, they will also often be working with large data sets, unwieldy spreadsheets, and so when presenting with lots of data from lots of countries, there tends to be a kind of satisficing uh, uh, strategy put in place where you will pick out three or four illustrative cases from your collection of countries, and then you will uh, essentially use them to prove your point. Now, big, uh, unwieldy data set. It's very unlikely, and this is the whole point of the Zanzibar gambit, that one of your <laughs> illustrative cases is going to be Zanzibar, coming right at the end of your spreadsheet. And so when someone says, that's very interesting, how did that work in Zanzibar? Is <coughs> not a kind of open-ended question requiring an answer. It's one where you need to remember their face and uh, <laughs> I hope you see them again. Okay. Now, I trust everyone here, and I trust there won't be anybody thinking about the Zanzibar gambit. So, here we are, 74 data points on the scattergram. That gives you an idea of the kind of countries, the amount of countries I'll be talking about. There's absolutely no clue as to what I'm talking about here. Uh, and uh, I can tell you that Zambia is one of these countries, but Zanzibar isn't. Okay, and then heckle three is another heckle that you'll hear and actually from quite different sort of parts of the, of the political science discipline, which is physics envy. <laughs> and I'm sure many of us have used that heckle at various times. I find I tend to uh, criticize anyone whose work's more mathematical than mine with that. It seems to be the benchmark. Uh, but anyway, this, this is the notion that we, for some reason, political scientists uh, want to emulate the more hard, um, uh, almost econometric type modeling that, uh, that we see elsewhere in, in the academy. And coalition theory um, does actually uh, lend itself to uh, that particular criticism. Now, I'm going to talk about uh, coalition theory. I mean, I'm talking basically about a, a literature which I first took an interest in back in Essex at the Department of Government doing my MA, which I just found it incredibly rigorous intellectually, but also very useful in terms of um, application to uh, case studies especially. And then um, I then took that to Birmingham for a bigger PhD on, um, on, uh, on red-green coalitions in Germany. And then hap it happily, just after I left Birmingham, a red-green coalition, a coalition between the SPD and the, uh, and the, uh, the Greens, uh, came to power at the <coughs> national level in, in Germany. So what had previously been an obscure PhD suddenly became kind of something that you could turn into quite an interesting book. So I produced this book while I was at Sussex and produced a few articles around that as well and uh, kind of left it for a while. I mean, uh, but more recently, with the emergence of the UK coalition, I've revisited that. I also revisited it in the, in the context of German federal elections towards the end of the last decade, uh, particularly to the 2009 elections. And, um, and, as I said, uh, particularly looking at the UK coalition and uh, published on that as well. Okay, so it's an area of literature that I'm kind of interested in, but it's an area of literature that I know from experience, having, for example, spent long hours in the pub with Simon, that other people aren't interested in. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, one those, it's one of those moments where you realise that it is a, it is a highly, uh, highly specialised field. Okay. <laughs> What do we mean by coalition theory in this sense? Well, 
the early coalition modeling isn't about politics. It's just about coalitions. It's about games. It's about how you model uh, the coming together of actors. And a lot of it was uh, done in departments of maths, departments of economics, especially in North America. It's essentially completely politics-free in its purest form, the most parsimonious form. Um, and we have some excellent departments of economics. See Michael Finas is here, and departments of maths. Uh, and so I don't want to uh, write checks I can't ca cash here. And I will say that my use of coalition theory is, in a sense, interrogating coalition theory. I do not write mathematical proofs. And it, the one time doing a, co a social choice option at Essex, where I was invited to write mathematical proofs with uh, my tutor, I almost had a nervous breakdown because it's, <laughs> you know, I was given this huge mathematical proof. And then I asked the question, what happens if we move this bracket? And uh, to, which, to which I kind of basically blubbed, I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, as I said, it's very useful in terms of it, the application and interrogation of the models. It's very useful in terms of sifting and structuring the, the kind of work that I do. So coalition theory in its early years was based on a set of assumptions. First of all, that political parties are rational, office-seeking actors. This is an attempt to strip out the context of which political parties operated, and to, in a sense, construct an idea of parties as these rational agents that behave rationally, and if we knew the incentive structures in which they operated, or knew enough information about the, that incentive structure, we can then predict <coughs> what they might do in the future, which is a, a, a powerful tool if you can get it to work. And one of the predictions we made, well, when I'm saying we, I'm kind of sitting on the shoulders of giants here, is that uh, if coalitions must form, they will form in a, an, an environment which is uh, constant sum, so limited in size and scope, and zero sum in that any gain, potential utility gain for a player within it, uh, is to the detriment of the utility of other players within it. Okay? So it's a pretty tough homo economicus type uh, model. And the players come to the game with a set of weights, which are basically determined by the amount of seats they hold in, the, in Parliament. So there's nothing there around the normative call to government or anything like that. This is just pure numerical formation criteria. So it tells you some things. It doesn't tell you everything, but it's a good starting point. So the kind of assumptions you'd get in this kind of approach would be players will want to be part of a coalition with the smallest majority, what's known as the minimum winner. Now, in pure games modeling, where there's no, there's no sort of stickiness, there's no institutional uh, stickiness, minimum winners make sense. That would be the very, very smallest possible majority in a, in a coalition game that required a majority, 50% plus one. But political parties obviously can't operate in that kind of environment very often, so it tends to be an assumption they will go with the coalition which has the smallest possible majority, the minimal winner, so that not, so, not necessarily the smallest one available, but the smallest one available given the possible constraints acting on the, on the actors. Another set of literature would argue that they want to be uh, uh, in a coalition where they are the biggest party. This is a literature around the notion of the cheapest winner. And... There's another literature which, as you'll see, I'm quite convinced by, which argues that they want to be uh, in a coalition with the smallest 
possible number of other players, which is known as the bargaining proposition, which is essentially based on the notion of eliminating opportunity, well, eliminating as many opportunity costs and transaction costs as possible in the coalition formation process and in the maintenance of the coalition going forward. So, to sum up, you then have a, a kind of set of numerical models around notions of minimum or minimal, minimal winning uh, coalitions from writers like von Neumann and Morgenstern, from Riker. You have this notion of the bargaining proposition from Lyserson. And you also have this uh, more, slightly more normative, but nevertheless uh, uh, mathematically uh, codified uh, assumption that the, the, ins the inclusion of the strongest party uh, skews games in certain directions. Okay, so it's pretty dry stuff. And as a result, it came under a lot of criticism from not just from sort of qualitative scholars, but from uh, game theoretical modelers who argued you just couldn't remove the content of politics from the coalition game. You had to have some sort of ideological dimension to uh, that, uh, to that uh, game to make, it, make any sense in terms of real-world politics. So you also had the emergence of uh, literature that used a different set of software. It wasn't about supercomputing large numbers. It was about looking at policy space and in some ways trying to conceptualize policy space. And they, they basically came up with a set of um, predictive models around the notion of spatial modeling and minimizing policy distance between coalition parties. And some of these were deeply antithetical to the original, the original uh, numerical, <coughs> numerical models. Okay. So I'm giving you, that's the dry bit, and as you can see, lots of talk about games, models, assumptions, formation criteria, and I've kind of deliberately done it in bright red text on a rather sort of slightly irritating background. So here we go, just for a second, a picture of sunlit uplands. <laughs> on the Peak District, as far as I can go out. And uh, these sunlit uplands are there just to sort of essentially herald my own contribution to this. Uh, which is essentially based on my uh, two decades of work using, uh, using and interrogating these models, which I call a sort of three-stage hybrid framework. Now, the three-stage hybrid framework is something that essentially draws upon the work of Robert Axelrod uh, and Abraham de Swan, uh, a political scientist and a political sociologist working in, 19, in the 1970s who augmented the mathematical criteria with notions of ideological space, and in particular uh, posited the notion of the median uh, legislator. I'll also, in this three-stage uh, model, touch on a third the third stage, which is around uh, notions uh, of uh, discounting and pure time preference, which is m a much more recent interest of mine, uh, and it's sort of basically associated with economics and uh, it also associated with a wider project that uh, someone like Michael Finus and myself at Inglefall Blue Dawn have been interested in, which is the nature, of, the nature of time discounting and how that impacts on policy. I'll explain that later as well. The result of all this, based on my interrogation of deductive coalition models through research over the last 20 years, is that it has an ontological base that's consistent throughout, and it has internal assumptions that are consistent throughout. It's not a pick and mix. If you wanted to write it, as a mathematical proof, it would be writable. This is the key thing here. Okay, so let's look at it. First, I start with 
a priori, two numerical formation criteria. This is based on what I've, empirical outcomes I've studied for 20 years now. And that's the, from von Neumann and Morgenstern, the, type, the, the notion of the minimal winner, and from Lysersen, the, the notion of the bargaining proposition. So, two assumptions, a priori, whenever you look at a distribution of seats in a parliament after an election, I am looking at those, those parties and thinking, they want to join parties, want to join coalitions with the smallest possible majority, all things being equal. And they will want to join coalitions with the smallest number of parties, all things being equal. But that's a set of a priori formation criteria. And as I said, this is then modified through a notion of ideological adjacency. Okay? And it's, it's, it's modified through the notion of de Swan's minimal connected winner with the smallest ideological range. And in particular, the use of this term, this term the median legislator. Now, this is to just, just to do this really simply to demonstrate how the median legislator works. Here is a highly, a highly abstracted notion of a parliament with uh, uh, 51 uh, legislators. Okay? So they don't look like people, they're just, it's a parliament of blue rods. But uh, it's, it, it's the best I, do, I can do using my graphics uh, package. Okay? <laughs> and nevertheless, what you can see underneath here is a set of parties, parties A, B, C, D, E, and F with their seats. Now I've arranged them along a continuum. That continuum could be authoritarian, libertarian. It could be post-materialist, materialist. It could be left, it could be right. Let's assume it's left, right on this one. So party A, quite a left-wing party. Party B, a more of a sort of social democratic party. And party A and B eventually decide to form a, a uh, a coalition because together they can come up with uh, 27, a surplus majority of one, 27 seats in the parliament. And the median legislator belongs to party B. Then we have to then pass our attention over to who is the median legislator inside the coalition. The median legislator inside the parliament is decisive inside the coalition game. Up to the point, the window is there, up to the point that the coalition uh, agreement is agreed. But the median legislator inside the coalition, the party that controls the median legislator inside the coalition, is the party that controls the life of the coalition going forward. So the, there's a sort of two sets of calculations here. Not only who do I go into who do I go into coalition with, but if we kind of working along a left-right uh, axis, which tends to be the best predictor of coalition outcomes, still, who's going to be the median le legislator inside the coalition? Who's going to be a, a decisive veto player in these kind of, um, in these kind of calculations? And just, to, just so you can see, the, 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 the party that owns the median legislator in the parliament is called the M party, the one that owns the median legislator inside the coalition is called the M Party K. So, the M Party, the one that owns the party in the, in the parliament, is decisive in the coalition game. M Party K is decisive in the coalition. Important to remember, if you're both, you hold all the cards. Okay? 
And then as adjuncts to this, left-right placement is the best single predictor, and that's modified by a secondary libertarian or authoritarian dimension, which kind of encompasses a lot of issues around personal freedom, culture wars, etc., uh, etc. Et okay. And then we add the, the pure time preference, third dimension, and essentially what I'm saying with this is that Individuals favor utility that is available to them straight away, as immediately as possible, and they discount utility that comes in the future. It's a kind of, kind of low-hanging fruit uh, argument. And it makes sense in terms of what we know about uh, how humans make choices about risk, for example. Uh, I always talk about cigarette smoking. Uh, if, you, if people use the product as it's intended to be used, half of them will die. As an ex-smoker, I'm kind of aware of that uh, particular uh, statistic. And, uh, but I've always been interested in the fact that it's been known for about 50 years and uh, you know, still kids go behind the bike sheds and smoke because clearly short-term utility in terms of being cool and being accepted now and the long-term uh, uh, negative payoff is way in the future, 20, 30, 40 years generally. So if, if, if it was the case that you had a deal where you went behind the bike sheds and you had a 50-50 chance of dying immediately when you smoked your cigarette. But for the rest of your life, if you're still alive, you, you could smoke with impunity. I'm still pretty sure that uh, you'd have far less smokers. It's, uh, it's, it's just the way we, we deal with risk. So in, those, in that context, we assume that office seeking will always trump policy seeking, all things being equal. Because office seeking payoffs are instant. The moment you've got your feet under the table, you've got your backside in the back of the big limousine, uh, you, you know, you, you're getting the payoffs. Okay? Policy is difficult. It takes time. It's, it's contested. Things go wrong. Things always go wrong. It's, that's the sort of rule of <coughs> politics. Nevertheless, within policy, short-term policy with distinct time horizons, achievable policy goals, will be, uh, in a sense, favoured over longer-term, uh, highly ambitious, potentially game-changing, but nevertheless very risky uh, policy proposals. And there will also be a preference, all things being equal, faced with two rival coalition, uh, coalition um, options, there will be a, a preference for familiar coalition arrangements. And again, that's very important when we look at uh, UK in uh, 2010. Right, so how do go co coalition governments form? Let's go back to that scattergram and add a bit of context, because this is the context within which coalition governments form. This is the 74 data points on the scattergram. And let's add a, a data label on the vertical axis, which is the effective number of parliamentary parties. An effective number of parliamentary parties is essentially a weighted index, an adjusted total, that by virtue, essentially weighs the, pay, the parties by virtue of the number of seats they won and is able to influence the outcome of the vote as a result of the number of seats they've won. In other words, it's the parties that have a say in uh, government formation. So in this sense, it's not the number of parties. The UK has a high number of parties in the Commons. It's the number of effective parties, the parties that count. And the way that um, we calculate uh, the effective number of parties is through a number of indices. And there's a, there is a thriving literature on which ones are the best, but I'm using the one that's the most used in the literature, it's kind of cult, the gold standard being used since the late 70s, which is the Larkso-Targapera index for 
uh, effective number of parties. So let's add one or two uh, countries to the scattergram. This is at the low end of the effective number of parties. So these are, these are parliaments where there's only a couple of effective number of parties, maybe a few more. So you have Malta and the United States. And then further along the uh, horizontal axis, you have Albania and France. So all very, very different types of countries uh, with very small <coughs> levels of effective parties. Let's go, sorry, let's go up the other way and look at countries with a high number of uh, parties. So here we have uh, Brazil, Belgium, Israel, and Indonesia. So now you've got a kind of pattern, uh, or some sort of form of compar uh, comparison between the two. You've got high, party, high, high levels of uh, effective parties and low. But beyond that, it doesn't tell us what. I mean, they're just random data points. So let's add another, uh, another legend on the horizontal axis, the disproportionality of electoral systems. The level of disproportionality of the electoral system in any country is the reflection of the mismatch between the number of votes cast or the percentage of votes cast for each party and the share of seats they get in Parliament after the election. Okay? No electoral system is purely, absolutely purely uh, proportional, but some are more proportional than others. And the level of disproportionality is calculated using what's known as the Gallagher index or the least squares index, which takes the square root of the sum of the squares of the difference between the percentages of the votes cast and the percentages of the seats allocated. So the lower the number, the more proportional the electoral system is. That's the, the smaller the distance between the two sets of numbers, the original two sets of numbers. And the higher the number, the more disproportional the electoral system is. Let's just then add a legend at the top. So now we can say 74 states, states by effective number of parties and electoral disproportionality between uh, 1990 and 2014. And I should, I should mention here that the data set I'm using here is the sort of benchmark set, which is Michael Gallagher's data set, but it's actually a few years out of date. So one of the things I did before uh, giving this paper was update the data set uh, for all 74 states, which is fun. And uh, any mistakes I've made are my mistakes, so, and have no uh, bearing on the uh, otherwise gold standard nature of the, the Michael Gallagher uh, uh, database that, from which I started. Okay. The Gallagher index does make, makes, makes no judgment as to the kind of electoral system. I mean, all we've seen is levels of disproportionality. There's no, there's no kind of information here at the moment about what kinds of electoral system we're looking at. But if we add all the other data points, and I will then use the first time in my life, I think, I will use a, a, a laser clicker. You can see down here the UK and a group of kind of classic Westminster system uh, first-past-the-post systems, a lot of them in the, uh, in, in, in the Caribbean, I notice. Um, and, then, and they all have reasonably uh, low numbers of uh, affected parties and reasonably disproportionate electoral systems. You then get a little further along, you've got Australia, which is an AV system. Okay, AV isn't a proportional system. In fact, paradoxically, it's actually a majoritarian system, so it's actually more majoritarian 
than the plurality system of first-past-the-post, but strangely creates outcomes which brings it, well, not strangely, but paradoxically brings outcomes that bring it further along here. So that's, uh, that's Australia. And then further along again, we have New Zealand and Germany, both of which use a mixed-member proportional system, so a, a two-ballot system, one that, where the vote goes to a list system, and one where a vote goes to a constituency competition. And then over here, you have uh, countries like Israel, um, the Netherlands, Switzerland, who have, all, have forms of highly proportional uh, electoral system in place. Oh, I should also mention France, uh, which uh, traditionally has strongly disproportional electoral system. But there's slightly more to it than that with France, as we'll come to later. Okay. So there we are. We got a. We got the kind of. We can see that there is a sort of some form of um, some form of pattern going coming there. And if we add if we add the trend line, we can see what I'm sure you've seen already, which is that all things being equal, there is a common direction of travel between the level of disproportionality of the electoral system and the number <coughs> of uh, the number of affected parties. So in systems with uh, low. Oh, sorry, I've just changed. In systems with low levels, of, um, uh, low, level, uh, low levels of disproportionality, you can have party systems with low levels of uh, affected parties, like Malta, where essentially a national party uh, fights a Labour party, both of which fight along the cleavages of class and, to a certain extent, conf and confession, anti-clericalism. It's all very, very simple. It's got nothing to do with the electoral system. Up. Further up the system here, Israel, there's, a, there's more than more sort of dimensions of grievance than I can think of, and that's why you end up with uh, multiple parties. So proportional systems can have a lot of affected parties or not a lot of, uh, of affected parties. Generally speaking, though, dis, you know, disproportional systems, it tends to limit the amount of parties in the system, regardless of how fractured the system is to begin with. Right, so what does that mean in terms of coalition formation? Well, let's strip all of this out and just uh, leave 16 states in Europe um, from uh, basically Western and Southern Europe. And what I've done here is um, I've, put, uh, I've put these uh, data points on, on the, uh, uh, sort of shape the data points to sort of denote various forms of government over time. So the blue, uh, <coughs> the blue diamonds are countries that have had coalition government and single party government. The red triangle is parties that have never had formal coalition government. The, the green squares are parties that have never had single-party government. Okay? It doesn't tell you a great deal, apart from the fact that most parties have had single-party and uh, coalition government. Although I should point out that the UK is clearly an outlier in terms of the electoral system, which I think has some consequences for making future predictions about British politics. Okay. How do we then make, uh, create a narrative around coalition formation? Well, as I said, we, we, we've kind of figured out that a lot of these countries have uh, both coalition and single party governments. So then if we aggregate the 518 governments in 16 states by type from 1945 to 2014, we see uh, single party governments are uh, not the norm. Multi-party governments are the norm. Okay. British-style single-party government is very much the exception. 
Uh, and he also have a sort of set of interesting set of other governments which have in, involve also sort of transitionary governments, emergency governments, and uh, increasingly technocratic governments as well, uh, which uh, fill that other uh, that final column. And then if we move over to <coughs> governments by country type, we can see that essentially the UK isn't really a coalition country. You know, I mean, it's just this one little blue here, but we're really in the same way. You know. You know, we can pretend now that we've moved into a world of coalition politics, but you know, if, the, the if the past is a good predictor of the future, we probably haven't. Uh, whereas there's other countries where that coalition government has always been basically the default, and where others where there's a bit of a mix between them. So in if we look at then at the coalition governments themselves, we find that we have a majority of minimal winning coalitions and then some surplus uh, majority coalitions and then minority coalitions. And again, this is kind of in keeping with what, I what my, my model would argue, which is that uh, the preference, all things being equal, are for minimal winning coalitions. But what it, I would also say is it's not the default mode of coalition. The 127 minimal winning coalitions only constitute just under 42% of the 303 coalitions, compared with the 117 constituting uh, 30, just under 39% of surplus majority co coalitions and almost 20% uh, which are minority coalitions. And minority coalitions, of course, are a problem when we're thinking about decision rules and 50% plus one. So that's, again, another area of, uh, of complication. Right. So just to give you an idea, very, very quickly, no, no explanations here, just to give you where the different kind of coalitions operate. UK has only had one coalition, so that's why we, we're 100% minimal winning. Uh, minimal winning, though, is pretty common. Uh, there are countries which tend to uh, favour minority coalitions for various reasons, like Norway uh, and Denmark. Uh, but generally speaking, a minimal winning or a surplus majority coalition would be the norm across most of these countries. Okay, so let's get to the UK coalition game. We've got the context, we know where we are, and this is the election after the... Uh, after the, the uh, this is the, the set of um, uh, party weights, as we would say, after the election in uh, May 2010. So let's look at these, part these parties as they line up from left to right. And a fairly rough and ready le re left to right, but nevertheless an effective one, I think. So at one end, I've, I suppose you could put it up either end, but I put it up the left end, basically because it's a dummy player, is Sinn Fein. Okay? Uh, it has no say in the game. It doesn't take up its seat, it doesn't recognise the, uh, the, the, the legitimacy of Westminster, so it has nothing to say in this, in this game. Which leaves us with nine parties and one independent, so essentially uh, ten players. Okay, so if we then, there's 650 MPs, but with certain MPs being kind of co-opted into jobs like the Speaker, we have a decision rule, which is 50% plus 1, of 3-2-3. So you have to get to 3-2-3 to form a government. Okay? The numerical outcomes only are completely counterintuitive. So, assuming that we can model coalitions, potential coalitions are saying, as 10 actors, so it's 10 to the power of 2, we end up with 10-0-2-4 potential outcomes. Okay? Which clearly is almost meaningless, because... There's just no political colour there. That's just the, the, the bones. That's the, that's the skeleton of the coalition game. Okay, if we add some uh, numerical criteria like the need for a majority coalition, you end up with 506 majority coalitions. Uh, you have 15 minimal winners. 
and an effective number of parties of 2.54. That's despite having, you know, well, including Sinn Féin, 11, part, 11 political actors in the parliament. So that's, it's incredibly interesting how that then compresses down in terms of real power. Below this, uh, below this effective number of parties, I've also used the Penrose-Banzaf index, which basically calculates what's known as voting power for each party. And what that does is give you an idea. We know how many parties have influence. This gives you an idea of how much influence those parties have. So it's a slightly different focus. Okay? And as you can see here, there are three parties with reasonably significant levels of influence. Uh, and they're who you'd expect. Labour, Lib Dem, and the Conservatives. Uh, and with the Conservatives, considerably more voting power than the other two parties. Okay. So far, so not hugely enlightening because essentially we're just still looking at the numerical uh, criteria. Let's look at the bargaining proposition. Bargaining proposition is the idea that there are lower um, sunk costs when it comes to um, uh, dealing with small, a small amount of parties. As you can see here, if we uh, take the bargaining proposition as a criterion, then the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition is a rational outcome. If, on the other hand, just wanted the minimal connected winner, the Rainbow Coalition, which was touted at the time by some one or two more excitable uh, political commentators, um, is, a, is an option. But you can imagine the transaction costs involved with that. Again, if you want the minimal connected winner with the smallest ideological range, you're back with the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition. Uh, then we look at the median legislator in Parliament and the median legislator in the coalition, and we find that the median legislator in Parliament is the Lib Dems. Now, that's quite interesting, because that means that the Lib Dems, during the window of negotiation, were decisive. Should have been, we would assume they were decisive, because they can crash the negotiations. Unfortunately, that didn't appear to be appreciated by the Liberal Democrats themselves. So, I mean, when you have the sort of uh, reversal on, for example, uh, student tuition free fees and the I'm sorry from Nick Clegg, uh, the, the, basic, the premise being is actually that the window was missed at that time. Ex post attempts to try and shore up that promise were impossible. That had to have been nailed before the coalition agreement was, was agreed. And once the Lib Dems were in power with the Conservatives. The Conservatives are the M Party K. The Conservatives control the business of the coalition. They, in a sense, uh, have the, the core, the ideological core of the coalition is with the Conservative Party. And it's no, I think it's no, um, it's no, uh, it's no coincidence that uh, the, as time has gone on, the tone, if not the substance of the coalition, has become increasingly right-wing because it's, it's, being, it's being kind of drawn towards the median legislator within the coalition, which is further to the right. Okay, so we ended up with a, um, a, a Lib Dem conservative coalition, and it was a tried and tested coalition. So that, again, um, that, that sort of conformed to our rules around uh, pure time preference. One of the kind of un unnoticed, <coughs> relatively unnoticed phenomena through the late half of the noughties, the late half of the last decade, whilst Labour in power, was increasing numbers of liberal, democrat, conservative coalitions at local government level. And they were campaigning at, and then governing on an austerity ticket. There was a, they, they were positioning themselves against what they saw as profligate Labour local councils. And so that whole playbook that would, and actually, um, to a certain extent, liberals had also kind of 
position themselves in that way in Scotland as well. And a, one, uh, David Laws, MP for Yeovil, is, is quite common, comes up in a lot of these um, processes of negotiation. So there was clearly a template being worked out. So there was, there was opportunity costs had been sunk in many ways before these decisions were taken. And were there any tried and tested alternatives? Well, I'm not aware of any local council that had a... I'm not aware of any geographical area that could possibly have the SDLP, SNP, and Plaid Cymru in it. And, uh, and so there was nowhere else for such a rainbow coalition to have ever been explored, and it was almost a no, no, non-starter to begin with, although obviously the more romantic left-wingers at the time hoped that you know, necessity would bring it about. So we end up with the hybrid explanation predicting the outcome. Because it's the only one that satisfies the two uh, numerical criteria I mentioned earlier. It's the only one that uh, is the minimal connected winner uh, with the smallest ideological range. And we, as I said, we've got the Lib Dems as M party, Conservatives as M party K. And it satisfies adjacency on the primary left-right placement and on the secondary libertarian authoritarian dimension where uh, my colleague Mark Debu, who also uh, wrote in a special issue of Political Quarterly with me, uh, demonstrated that if you look at the three parties on the left, Right uh, dimension, the Lib Dems were sort of equidistant between Labour and the Conservatives, but on the authoritarian, uh, uh, libertarian dimension, the Conservatives and Lib Dems were much, much closer. When I say the Conservatives, the Cameroons were much, much closer to themselves on things like civil liberties and personal freedoms than uh, Brownite Labour, which towards the end of the, its time in office had become distinctly authoritarian. So there was much there was room there. <coughs> right. And it satisfies the notion of pure time preference because of the mix of policy-seeking and office-seeking options and preference for familiar coalition arrangements, which I will come back to. So it's no surprise being so, such a perfect fit with my model that uh, even, with, even if you add the, the time taken to uh, form the 2010 coalition, Britain still remains way down on this list of uh, uh, countries where uh, of time it takes for the uh, incumbent outgoing government to essentially get, you know, pack the van and leave the building. Okay? So, for example, we have an average around about three days. The average for everyone is about a month. <coughs> Netherlands. Um, Belgium, last time, was way over a year. Um, it was really interesting in our case how, how much of a sort of crisis narrative was invoked uh, there was, you know, the, the markets were not going to stand it, and that uh, it had to be all done before the end of the weekend, because otherwise there'd be a run on the pound. This may or not, may or not be true, but it kind of puzzles me that, um, a, well, I just do not know how a country like Belgium, for example, um, is so much more uh, resilient than uh, a country like the UK in this respect, and can actually survive for a year uh, without, uh, without the, 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 the roof falling in. But uh, I'll leave it at that. That's dangerously like a political point. Okay. How long do coalitions last? Well, as you can see, this data is incredibly contingent. Coalitions last a long time. There's no reason why they shouldn't. But there is an awful lot of variance. And even the coalition, the countries, coalition prone countries with very high, uh, you know, the, where these bars are very high and where, even where the averages are quite high, uh, can have very, very short-run uh, short coalitions as well, which skew the data. 
But basically, what it does mean is that there is a, there's no a priori assumption that, uh, that coalitions are in any way unstable. But how do, they, how do they eventually break down? Well, they break down in ways in which you would probably imagine. So 27.8% broke down because of a regular parliamentary election. So they made it all the way, oh, sorry, made it all the way to the, uh, to the next parliamentary election. 24.2%, uh, they uh, basically broke down because of policy conflict. Okay. I'm trying to find policy conflict. It's the, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And then you then get 22.4 because of early elections. Again, not, not something that you can really uh, uh, legislate for. And then finally, you have 15.4 um, because of conflict inside one or more coalition partners. And what I find very interesting is that is more common than defeat on the floor by the opposition because coalitions place enormous strain on coalition parties. So often, after a certain point, coalitions have passed their sell-by date. It's not just about how do we extricate ourselves out of this coalition without losing X number of seats. It's how do we extricate ourselves out of this coalition without uh, basically uh, breaking, splitting up the party itself. Okay, and you can see pure time preference in the program. There's a lot of emphasis in the UK programme on economic reform, rebalancing the economy, rolling back the public sector, five-year plan for the deficit, and on constitutional reform, the big society, rolling back the state, five-year fixed parliaments, electoral reform, and redistricting. So the possible reform of party finance as well. But as you can see, half of them have been a failure. So clearly this goes back to what I was saying about short-term and long-term policy, uh, policy horizons. If, as a sort of rule of thumb, you are doomed to failure as a politician, you want to keep your target fairly small. And in terms of portfolio allocation, we see the, we see, uh, the pattern consistent elsewhere. The Lib, oh, sorry. the Lib Dems are overrepresented in numerical terms. The Conservatives are overrepresented in policy terms and crucially have all the blue chip portfolios, Treasury, Home Office, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I know there's sprinkling of Lib Dem uh, ministers around there, but essentially that's, that's sewn up. And there's no signature or flagship portfolio for the Lib Dems. My studies on Red-Green, for example, showed that the Greens were very, apart from on one uh, coalition in Lower Saxony in 1990, the Red-Greens were incredibly, the Greens were incredibly uh, insistent on having environment. Environment had to be theirs. It's their signature. It gave them a sort of critical mass. Um, if, you, uh, if you're a right-wing uh, agricultural party, you get farming. You, know, you have to have that sort of signature uh, portfolio. And uh, the Lib Dems pursued that. And, and, and in doing that, they actually, uh, what you were left with was um, Nick Clegg hoping that his deputy prime ministership and co-piloting uh, co of the bilateral uh, meetings of the parliament, of the cabinet, would be enough to, uh, in a sense, uh, maintain the dog in the fight for the Lib Dems. But clearly, there was no institutional architecture there. And I think that photo sort of seems to kind of subtly sum up <laughs> the power relationship there. Okay. So what can coalitions achieve? Well, we've talked about Countries like Germany that have managed to, in a sense, construct the most successful economy in Western Europe and become the most important, uh, and potentially some people would say, hegemonic country in Europe. And countries, other countries that have just done pretty well, like 
Holland and Denmark. And, you know, they've constructed countries which are decent places to live, and, you know, some of us would probably quite like to live there. Um, so there's a lot that can be done in, uh, in a coalition. There's nothing per se <coughs> limiting about a coalition that isn't limiting about all forms of government. Okay? The British general election produced this hung parliament the first time since 1974, and the subsequent formation of this conservative liberal coalition presents an analyst with a paradox. You have a, 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 a radical departure from established patterns since the Second World War, but you also have a kind of a, almost a redux, a return to a sort of an era under the leadership of some great names like Asquith, Lloyd George, McDonald's well, not a great name, but <laughs> Asquith, Lloyd George, Baldwin, Chamberlain, and Churchill. And some of the achievements of these British coalitions has been great. I mean, a, some people might not say achievement, but the point is, the First World War, which we are now in the process of commemorating, had the potential to um, dis destroy the British state. I mean, it was a time of, historically, it was a time of deep social unrest, international forces that were in many ways sort of tying in with uh, more uh, sort of localized sources of unrest. And however it was done, these two coalitions, the 1915 Asquith coalition, which included the Irish nationalists, and the 1916 to 1922 Lloyd George coalition, without the Irish nationalists after 1916, nevertheless prosecuted the war with increasing efficiency and some would say um, sort of almost sort of single-mindedness. And uh, eventually the Britain was on the winning side. That's an achievement. Things, the post-war world eventually didn't turn out really as one would have liked. I think as people talk about Homes for Heroes, but nevertheless, um, again, in terms of statecraft, there was a lot of potential there for uh, the, the destruction of the British state during the 30s from the right and the left. And the, the, the national governments of that period, although again, one might not agree with the policy mix, nevertheless, kept the show on the road uh, with variants of various parts of the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, the Liberal Nationals. And the Second World War was won again. Uh, unfortunately, this sort of is actually a, an example in point of the short-term nature, um, short nature of utility being uh, more desirable because, of course, this Potsdam Conference takes place after Churchill's been booted out of office. So it's, it's, uh, it's Clem Attlee who appears in the, around the chair. But nevertheless, you... Um, you had these two uh, coalitions during that period, 39 to 40, Chamberlain war government, which it's not lauded in national history, but it did draw a line and it did uh, prepare for war. And the 1940 to 45 Churchill coalition, which took Britain through the sort of dark days of the war and eventually took it on to uh, victory again. So these are all periods of uh, great achievement. Okay, we get to the 10, 2010 Cameron coalition. Um, and they're kind of, you know, the whole rhetoric was trying to dig into, sort of tap into this notion of crisis, economic crisis again, in the national interest. Only days to save the economy. This was a, this was a narrative, someone like um, Colin Hay, working up in Sheffield, would argue this was, this was purely narrative, a purely narrative ploy. No, it wasn't reality at all, but it became increasingly groupthink. And it wasn't helped by people like Liam Byrne uh, saying, there's no money left leaving a note saying there's no money left, which is possibly the most <coughs> boneheaded uh, act of any uh, Labour minister in the, last, uh, in the last government. Okay, 
final remarks. Uh, despite the, the crisis narrative, actually, if you look, the 2000, sorry, I should say 2010, not 2001, transfer of power from Labour to the coalition was smooth. It demonstrates the resilience of the Westminster model. It shows that because of the Westminster model, even with a small majority, you have quite strong steering capacity if you want it, if you can manage it. Obviously, more recently, that appears to be moot, but nevertheless, the first 100 days of the, of the coalition were pretty impressive in terms of statecraft. And it's encouraging, therefore, for other variants of the Westminster, Westminster system who might find themselves in similar circumstances. It's also a tribute to a core, professionalized, and non-partisan civil service. It's worth reminding ourselves. Before, before, the, before the election, when the polls were narrowing, clever people inside the civil service identified the, the possibility of there being coalitions and they war-gained those coalitions. Okay? So when the moment came that the parties had to, in a sense, you know, sort of bash out some form of, uh, bash out some form of, uh, of um, solution with the Rubik's Cubes, are they? They're all... Well, you got four. There should be a fifth one. Uh, nevertheless. <laughs> okay. With the Rubik's Cubes. Okay. Um, nevertheless, what they had all the resources that could be made available to them made available to them. So civil service resources were available to all parties. And actually, this compares well with experiences in other countries with more partisan civil servants, like uh, Belgium and Germany. So when assessing the significance of the May 2010 general election, the data for it are not that far out of line. Uh, basically, the least square score is 15.1 which is stands slightly from the average of 15.9. So the, 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 the actions, election system was slightly less disproportional than it had been on average since 1990. The effective number of parties was 2.57, uh, up slightly from 2.3. Not too bad, uh, but not a set change away from what we're used to. And this does not suggest that the May 2010 election represented a sea change in the underlying dynamics of the UK party system. So, there's a lot of talk now about the breakup of this, uh, this, uh, particular, um, this particular coalition, but there's also a lot of talk about how coalitions are the new norm and the next coalition will between, be between Labour and Liberal, perhaps, or a, another version of the Lib Dem Conservative coalition, or even, as Jacob Rees-Mogg suggested on um, the local version of the politics show, a UKIP conservative government, um, which is quite interesting. Um, but uh, yes, yes, you can rule it out on the mass. Uh, as he quite extraordinary statement, he says, there's a majority of 45% there, he said, which, uh, which, which was slightly, slightly alarming. Okay. But anyway, on the, best, on the basis of past performance, one must conclude that if the UK retains its first-past-the-post system, then a return to single government, a return to a pattern of single-party government, might not happen in 2015, it might happen, it might happen in 2020 if we keep the fixed-term parliaments, but a return to the norm is highly likely, and that there isn't really going to be a serious step change in British politics going into the future. Thank you very much.